as I mentioned earlier, I do hope that you had a wonderful Christmas with your family. Uh, what my family did is that kind of the tradition that we followed for the last 15 years or so. Uh, we had the Christmas Eve service here with you, and then on Christmas morning, we traveled uh, to Virginia. And we've done that every year uh, except for two over the last 15 years. Uh, one was in 2013. Uh, we didn't fly that year. We didn't go to Virginia that year uh, because Lincoln had just uh, been born. And so we stayed uh, here uh, since he was so... Uh, so new uh, to the world. And then in 2020, because we didn't have an in-person Christmas Eve service, we were already having in-person gatherings, but we didn't do an in-person Christmas Eve service that night. Uh, we, we actually flew out on Christmas Eve. But other than those two years, so the last 15 years, we have the Christmas Eve service, and then the next morning, it's not wake up and open gifts, it's wake up and grab the suitcase and go to the airport or drive uh, perhaps to Nashville or Louisville to catch an airplane uh, there. And we don't travel that way. We don't do our Christmas that way because it's convenient. Uh, we do that because about 15 years ago, I recognized that our culture is becoming so, so secular. But there was this, there's one area where even our secular culture recognizes, oh, I should probably go to church. And it's around Easter and Christmas. Those two holidays, even in our increasingly secular society, people, they say, yeah, maybe it would be appropriate for me to go to church. And so people who won't go to the church at any other time in the year will come to church on Christmas Eve. And so we don't do it because it's convenient, but we do it because it's strategic. It's something that we have chosen to do. We want to make a Christmas Eve service a priority uh, for our church. And Christmas travel is often a topic of conversation that comes up, right? People are, oh, what are your Christmas plans? Are you, you traveling for Christmas this year? And so I've regularly had conversations with people who don't really know um, me that well, or maybe don't know that I'm a pastor or that kind of thing. And so I'll say, well, we're going to fly out on Christmas morning, and I'll get some kind of bewildered looks. Like, why are you leaving that day? Why aren't you leaving earlier? And when I explain it, uh, there's a little bit of like, okay, maybe I can understand. And it's a lot like when I explain to people that I'm from Virginia Beach, Virginia, but I live in Chandler, Indiana, and they say, why did you move here, right? They're just kind of, they don't really, it doesn't make sense to them. Um, why do I live here? Why do I travel on Christmas Day? Um, it does make sense to me, even if it doesn't make sense to other people, because I look at my life differently, and I look at the future differently, and I make plans differently. And I don't tell you this because I want you to feel sorry for me or think, oh man, Pastor Daniel's so awesome, he travels on Christmas Day or anything like that. Um, I'm super blessed. On Christmas Day, I get to fly in an airplane. I don't have to drive for 13 hours. Um, I get to go see my family. There are missionaries serving other places that it's just not feasible for them to see their family at Christmas. And so I'm super blessed. And I'm also very blessed, not only in those regards, but that my family, they get it. They're mission-minded as well, and they want me to, to be here for Christmas Eve. And so they're super accommodating. I tell you all of this because we plan and we think differently about the future, and we determine our values differently, and we set our priorities differently than the rest of the world. 
if we've placed our hope and faith in Jesus Christ. And this dictates not just the way that we travel or when we travel or how we take vacations. It dictates the way that we have conversations with our family and how we structure our meals and our weeks. And that even in the week between Christmas and New Year's, when everything seems crazy and weird and off and you don't know what day of the week it is, we get up on Sunday morning, perhaps earlier than we have all week, and we go to church. We gather like you have. The passage of scripture that we're going to look at today reshape our view of the future. And they help us understand why we should live our lives differently. We should plan our futures differently. As we stand on the brink of a new year, as we're ending 2023 and we're just about to step into 2024, I want you to be reminded of the future that believers hope in. I want you to see the big picture. And I want you to have that in mind as you make your plans for 2024 and you adopt resolutions and you instill new habits. Look with me at Luke 21. We'll start reading in verse 5. Jesus is at the temple. He's just noticed uh, some things that are happening in the temple, using it as a teaching opportunity. And then he says, Then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, These things which you see, the days will come which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And this would literally be fulfilled in AD 70 when Emperor Titus would besiege Jerusalem, surround it, and then eventually capture it, and a great fire would ravage the temple, and they would literally mine the temple, go and break apart every stone to get the gold and precious metals that had melted down between the bricks in that fire. They would literally pull every stone apart from one another. And the people hear this, and they're astonished. In fact, many are upset. When they would arrest Jesus, one of the things that they would be upset about is that he would say that he could tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. And he was speaking of his own personal temple, that he would be killed and resurrected in three days. But people don't like it when you go changing their church. I learned this when I first moved here, and I changed the chairs. We used to have chairs that sat up here on the stage, and we replaced them with new chairs. And I thought, everybody's going to come to church and say, Pastor Daniel, the new chairs are great. That's so great that you bought some new chairs. But that wasn't how people reacted. People said, what happened to the chairs? Where are the old chairs? They didn't like that someone had changed their church. Religious people don't like it when you change the church, and they really don't like it when you talk about their church being knocked down, knocked over. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And so people are curious, well, what are you talking about? How can we know when this will be? How can we be prepared for it? Most likely thinking about how can we stop it? Verse 7, so they asked him, saying, Teacher, but when will these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? And he said, Take heed that you be not deceived. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time has drawn near. Therefore, do not go after them. But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass first, 
but the end will not come immediately. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences, and there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and rulers for my namesake. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. It'll be an opportunity for you to share the message. Therefore, settle in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed, even by parents and brothers, relatives, friends. And they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all for my namesake. But not a hair of your head shall be lost. By your patience, possess your souls. Jesus has just told them of some really horrible things that lay in store. Some awful experiences that they're going to have. That some of them would die. Many of them would be persecuted. They'd be hauled in front of kings. They'd be tried. Some of them would be betrayed by friends and family. But Jesus says, even though some of you are going to die, even though you're going to be persecuted and, and tortured, not a hair on your head will be lost. How is that possible? Because when we're Jesus's, when we belong to him, when we're in Christ, they may do what they want to this physical body, but we have a home that is beyond this one and a soul that lasts beyond this one. And so he says, by patience, possess your souls. Because your soul cannot be lost. It cannot be conquered. You're in me. Verses 20 to 24 tell us more about the calamity that's coming to Jerusalem. Skip down with me to verse 25. And there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, and the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear and expectation of those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, look up, lift up your heads, because your redemption draws near. Then Jesus gives them a parable about a fig tree. Tells them that they can tell when a fig tree is about to produce fruit based on the signs of that fig tree, based on the season. You'll be able to notice this is the time that we can expect the harvest. Since I've lived here in the Midwest, I've heard many of you, you have all of these sayings, things like uh, corn will be knee high by the 4th of July or whatever. You know, you have these sayings. These are the signs. This is when we know it'll be ready. Our garden should be this far along. Jesus is saying, when you begin to see these things, you should know that we're in the last age. But then look at verse 32. This verse is often misunderstood, misinterpreted. Because he says, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Peter would have to clarify later because some people heard this and they thought, 
Nobody here is going to die before Jesus returns. And the idea here is not that Jesus will return before this generation passes, but rather this will all begin. And we will enter the last age, the last stage. They will see the beginning of the end. But remember, Jesus said these things will begin and it will not happen immediately. What we see here is that from the time of Jesus unto now, and however long Jesus tarries into the future, we are in the last days. This is the final age. This is the final chapter. They had the period when Jesus was there with them. They had the period before that of silence. They had the period of God rebuilding Israel. They had the period of exile. They had the period of nations, the Israel as the nation's heyday. They had the period of their exodus. They had the period of their enslavement. There are all of these stages, but we have come to the last and final stage, the church stage. When God will build his kingdom, not in a place, not with borders, but through a people. A people in every tribe, in every tongue. He will build a church. And we're in that age. We're in this final chapter. So, if we're in this final chapter, you and I, right now, today, December 31st, 2023, what should we do? Well, that's what Jesus tells us next, starting in verse 34. Take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch there and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. We're told that in light of these truths, that because we live in the last days, we should live cautiously. We should take heed. I don't know about you, but I'm the kind of person that is constantly surprised by the weather. And I don't mean that I am constantly surprised that it can be hot one day and freezing cold the next in southern Indiana. I've become, become accustomed to that over these last many years. What I mean is that though I have a phone in my pocket that can within 15 seconds give me a seven-day forecast of what the weather will be here, Evansville, Newburgh, wherever, I regularly walk outside and go, oh, it's raining today because I'm not paying attention to the weather. I know that there is all of that information easily accessible to me. I know that there are channels on TV that are totally dedicated to what the weather will be I know that there's a report that meteorologists, people who go to school to, to, to interpret weather patterns, and I know that every day they get up on television multiple times a day and they tell us, this is what the temperature will be. This is the likelihood that it will rain, carry an umbrella. I know all of that is available and I pay no attention to it because the majority of my day is not dictated by the weather. I'm going to do pretty much the same thing I would do every day, whether or not it's raining. Now, a few years ago, I did have a small little lawn care side hustle. And when I had that, I did pay attention to the weather. Because what I was going to do from day to day was determined by whether or not it was raining. How I was planning out my week. I want you to recognize that what we have just read, that these passages of Scripture, that they should have a bearing on our day 
day-to-day lives. It should not be like a weather forecast that it doesn't matter really because every day you're going to go to work in an office somewhere. It should have an impact on the way we live because it dictates the future and what matters. Jesus says, take heed. That's what he commands. And that literally means bring to your attention. Take note. Don't be oblivious. Make note. Don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard. Be alert. It says, don't let your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. And that day come on you unexpectedly. And I want you to notice that in those words, there's kind of two extremes we can be at. You can be carousing and drunk, which means that you are totally, really just oblivious to everything that's going on. You're partying. You are under the influence. You're numbed. Then there's the opposite of that, which is filled with the cares of this life. You can be incredibly sober, up to date on everything that's going on not oblivious, watching the news like a hawk, and still not be taking heed of what matters most. Don't get wrapped up in the affairs of this life. Don't get wrapped up in partying and drunkenness. But rather, instead of one of those extremes, pay attention to what matters most. This passage reminds me of another passage where Paul tells Timothy to serve in ministry like a good soldier who is not entangled in the affairs of this life. A soldier has to remain focused on his mission. He has to remain focused on his calling. And as Christians, we know that ultimately this world is not our home. That Jesus is coming back to take us with him. As Christians, we know that we're just passing through. And this means that we should not be entangled in the affairs of this life to the point that we do not keep our eyes and hearts focused on home. Now, you can take this application way too far. And I know this because I have an example of it in someone that I knew. When I was a boy, I attended a church in Nashville and there was this this family, uh, Tommy Jones and his family who uh, attended there. And he told the story one time that when he first got married, he and his wife were so convinced that Jesus was going to return in the next month that they didn't buy a house. They just bought a tent. That's all they needed, right? They're married. Jesus is coming back any moment. We don't need to buy a house. We don't need a place to rent. We'll just live in a tent for the next couple of weeks because Jesus is coming back. We should be ready for Jesus to return. But we should follow the example of the exiles. The exiles, this group of people, they were carried out of Israel. I've talked to you about them in this sermon series on Advent. They were carried out of Jerusalem into Babylon, and they would be there for 70 years. They would live in Babylon. And in Jeremiah, they're told to seek the peace of that city that they're in. They're to buy homes. They're to plant gardens. They're to get married and to have children. They're to pray for the city. Because as that city has peace, they will have peace. He he tells them in that same chapter, he says, I will be bringing you home. 
So they know this is not their forever home, that the one day they will return to Israel. But while they're there, they should seek the peace of the city that they have been planted in, knowing that one day they will be transplanted back home. Having our, our eyes on the return of Jesus Christ does not mean that we have no roots here. It means that we recognize that our final and ultimate home is somewhere else. But while we're here, we should seek the peace of this home. We should live cautiously because this world is not our home. We should live cautiously because we are in enemy territory. We are exiles, captives here in this flesh, looking for the day that Christ will return and establish His eternal kingdom. Now this promise tells us to be cautious. And hopefully as you plan your year and you live your life and you adopt resolutions, you do so thinking about the fact that this world is not my home. I'm not going to be wrapped up in the things of this earth. I'm going to live my life in such a way that honors Christ first and foremost, that invests in his kingdom. Hopefully this promise causes you to be cautious, to live differently. But I want you to see that this promise is not just one that gives us caution. This promise is one that gives us comfort. Verse 28 says, Now when these things begin to happen, look up. And don't just look up. Lift up your heads. Has anyone ever told you to keep your head up? It's not just look at the sky, but it's keep your head up. Look up and lift up your head. Because your redemption draws near. When we see these things happening in the world, our response is not dismay, it is not fear, it is not anxiety, but rather because of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, our response can be to look up and lift up our heads because our redemption draws near. We are that much closer to all things being made new. And then in verse 33, Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away but my words will by no means pass away. Later on in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if you've marked that spot, turn there. We're going to look at a few verses there. Paul kind of fleshes out what it means to have this hope, have this comfort as a result of this promise. He says in verse 13, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. He's speaking of those who have died lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. We had a great trip to see my family in Virginia after celebrating here with Nicole's family. And I think perhaps the 
most poignant moment for me this past week was everyone was playing inside the house and my father and I both escaped out to the covered porch. It was beautiful weather in Virginia Beach this past week. I wore shorts every day. We went out onto my dad's covered porch and he sat on the swing and I sat in a rocking chair and we just chatted. And I had this flashback of being in that exact same spot about 10 months previous when I flew to Virginia to go with my dad to his oncology appointment. when we didn't know if the cancer he had, he has, is fatal or not. And after we had gone to the doctor and they'd given us some information but they didn't have the full picture yet, we sat on his porch and chatted that afternoon before I flew back. And so this week, sitting in that exact same spot, I looked at my dad who's doing well, is being treated with uh, immunotherapy and has had no change to his quality of life. And I said, man, we didn't know if we'd be here 10 months ago. And with that in mind, there's a fresh dose of perspective and gratitude. I'm so thankful that we, we have more time. But it could have been completely different. It could have been that my dad's cancer was a fast-moving, aggressive cancer that took his life this past year. And I could have sat in that same spot and not been present with him. And I would have grieved. And I want you to see in this passage of Scripture that we're not told that we can't grieve. Because Paul does not say to the Thessalonians, don't grieve. He says, I don't want you to grieve like others who have no hope. Christians are absolutely people who should grieve. I mean, think about Jesus' example of grief. Jesus knows the hope and the comfort of the truth that there is a life after this one, but he stands at the tomb of Lazarus, his friend who has died, and he weeps. Jesus knows better than anyone the truth that we're talking about this morning. Jesus knows better than anyone that there's a reality and a comfort to this, but yet even Jesus weeps at the loss of his friend. So grief isn't forbidden. It's just redirected. It's different. We grieve differently. He says, I don't want you to weep. I don't want you to grieve like those with no hope. I want you to know. I don't want you to be ignorant. I want you to know this truth. Paul wants to clarify for them the meaning of this promise so that knowledge can be comforting. You know, there were many things I learned in high school that I said, what good is this going to do me? How am I ever going to use this in life, right? Why do I need to know that 2x equals 2y, whatever? How is this going to help me at all? I have these conversations now with my children. Why do I need to know this? I don't think I have to work very hard to convince you how this knowledge can be applicable. How comforting it can be that those who have already passed in Christ, that they're with Him 
passage says that they will return with him and that we won't prevent or precede their bodies being resurrected, but rather they will meet and be reunited with their souls in the air. And then we shall then be caught up with them. There shall be this great reunion. We will be reunited with those who have gone before us in death. God will bring them with him. They will be resurrected, reunited with their bodies, transformed. And then, as 1 Corinthians 15, 52 says, in, the, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we will all be changed. We will all be different. And we'll be reunited. And not only reunited with siblings, parents, loved ones, friends, people we've known through in church all these years who've gone on to be with Jesus, not only will we be reunited with Him, that's wonderful enough, we will also meet Jesus there. The one who's made all of it possible. Um, whenever my wife and I have the opportunity to travel and, and see family, like we just recently did, Inevitably, it comes time for the end of the trip. It's time to prepare for the travel back. And there's goodbyes and there's hugs. And it happens in stages because these people are leaving and you're not going to see them again before you fly out. And then you say goodbye to the, the next circle inward. And, and then there's the final goodbye at the airport. With whoever it was that drew the short straw to take you to the airport. And I found that it's so much easier to say these goodbyes if we can say, can't wait to see you in March. Or, can't wait till we're together again this summer. It takes a whole lot of the sting out of the goodbye when you can say, we'll see you later. And for believers, while we grieve the goodbye. We grieve the loss. We grieve the separation. It's so much better when you can say, but I'll see you later. I'll see you soon. So there's this reunion and this meeting, and that gives us hope. And then we're like him. And we're reunited with him. Now, there are some people who are critical of this passage of Scripture because they, they take issue with the fact that Paul says in this passage, I don't want you to grieve like others who have no hope. And Paul's writing to the Thessalonians where they're in a city that is represented by a whole host of religions. There are lots of different people in Thessalonica where he's writing this letter who have their own thoughts and beliefs and hopes about the afterlife. How can he say, like those who have no hope, they have their own hope, they have their own path, they have their own religion. For us to read it today, there would be people who would be offended that we would say Christians are people who are able to grieve with hope unlike everyone else. They would say that's just so exclusive. Now let's say for a moment that we, we were to be inclusive 
And we were to say, for people who do have a different path or a different religion or a different worldview, they have some idea of an afterlife. They have their own version of heaven. They have their own version of seeing their ancestors after they die. I want you to recognize that there is a key difference between the hope that we have and the hope that the religions of the world have. The key difference is that we have a hope that we will see those who have died in Christ and that we will be called up with Christ and that we will be made like Him. Every other religion in the world, when they think of the afterlife, they think of it being some journey where they have to fight these demons. They have to fight to make right all of the wrongs that they did. They have to serve some time in this kind of middle place. They have to go and meet some standard. But for us, it's not entering into the afterlife hoping that we've been good enough or hoping that we're up to the challenge. It's entering into the afterlife knowing that Christ has met the challenge for us. That we are in Him. And that we will not stand before God on our own merits. That we will not stand before God explaining our own actions and deeds, but rather we will stand before God in Christ's righteousness, in His standing. If you haven't noticed by all the stories I've told this week, I took a trip. So one more trip illustration. When you fly, you have to go through security. And security is all about seeing what's really there. It's putting your bags through an x-ray machine. It's walking through a metal detector. And every airport you go to, they have their own process because they have different equipment. Some you got to take off your shoes, others you don't. Some you got to take off your coat, others you don't. Some you need to take your laptop and every electronic your child has out of a bag, some you don't. It all depends on the equipment that they have and how good they are at seeing through. Those who are asleep is those who are asleep in Christ. We will be called up with Jesus. When I stand before God, I stand before the one who is able to see all. There is no outer covering that can conceal who I am. There is no pretense. There is no fakery. There is no mask that I can wear to make me look different than what I really am. Better than any x-ray machine, he is able to see to my very core, my heart. I have no hope if I stand before him alone. And so it is so good and so gracious that I will not stand before him on my own, but I will stand before him in Christ. And he will not see me. He will see Jesus. He will see the perfect righteousness of Christ. How can I be called up? How can I have this hope? Because I won't go based on my own merit. I will go in Christ. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer.
Father, I pray